This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and joining me today is my fellow co-host Tony Black. Tony, welcome back to the show. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> I, I take on too many projects that aren't Star Trek related. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm a fool, but it is good to, it is good to be back. Especially for this topic, because this is gonna this is gonna be a fun one, I think. Yeah, this is gonna be a good one, I think. This is gonna, and hopefully, it's gonna speak to a lot of you out there who um, maybe have this little kind of guilty secret, you know, on a I don't know, a cold night. You might kind of settle down in bed, you know, might whip out your phone and you might look for something on the net. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about anything too dodgy. I'm talking about fan fiction. So I did wonder where you were going with that um, for a minute, Clara. Yeah, I got, I got a <laughs> <laughs> fictional fictional stuff um so this is like uh, the most active parts of a fandom i would say almost of any sci-fi or indeed film or television franchise which is fan fiction so it's the most active in the sense that people are propelled into actually creating something rather than just observing or chatting or um uh, consuming media they're actually going to create it themselves so first of all i thought we should start a little bit about the definition of what fan fiction is which is kind of complicated because Depending on what source you read, there's lots of different definitions. But the basic definition is fan fiction is written by a fan of and featuring characters from a particular TV series, film or book. It's written by fans rather than the original creator of the work. So these people are inspired to take the original creation and embellish it and kind of expand it, if you, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So the little history surrounding fan fiction is that there's always been like fictional homages to art and fiction and literature. And some of Shakespeare's plays echo classical sources and poetry. So Titus Andronicus uh, contains references to Ovid's Metamorphoses. But fan fiction as we know it today was born in 1966. And three very important things happened in 1966. Jean Rhys published her novel Wide Sock SOC, which is a story centred on the mad Mrs. Rochester from Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Tom Stoppard wrote a play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, which is based on characters from Shakespeare's Hamlet and was performed in the UK at um, the Edinburgh Fringe in 1966. And Star Trek was first broadcast on television. You've missed one extra Oh, one, go ahead. What, what else of super importance happened in 1966? Oh, the World Cup? <laughs> England won the World Cup, obviously. Yeah, sorry. I, people probably do write fan fiction about football, don't they? <laughs> well, you'd imagine. I mean, 
But maybe, maybe, maybe like Germans write fan fiction in which they won the World Cup. It's quite possible. But uh, <laughs> I had to throw that one in there. Sorry, fans. I don't know how many football or soccer fans there are, but yeah, there we go. I had to, I had to bring that up. But yeah, your three are better. Let's, let's go with that. And Star Trek, yeah, it's the most important one. That's the most important one. Yeah, that's the one we're going to talk about today. Um, So I would argue that these um, three things changed the way fans look at fiction. Each event led to the idea that an original source of fiction could be adapted and expanded by a fan, and the stories can be taken on and basically run away with. So the question I have for you, Tony, after my lengthy introduction, is why do people write fan fiction? Well, I I think people write fan fiction because they feel like they want to contribute to something they love. I think first and foremost, fan fiction is a way of connecting with the material in the sense of, in various different ways. And, you know, I know we're going to get into all the different kinds of fan fiction because it is a myriad, you know, picture of all kinds of different things people write about. But I think it comes from, firstly, I think it comes from a point of love. I think it comes from a point of wanting to put your own stamp on a, on a universe that, you know, you'll never be able to legally do, you know, in, in, in certainly in this day and age. But I, I think, I don't think you could write fan fiction if you don't genuinely love and feel like you know these characters. And I suppose it goes back to this whole idea that, you know, once, once you fall in love with a, with a fictional world like Star Trek, especially something like Star Trek, you feel a sense of ownership, I think, as a fan. You feel a sense of you've committed this amount of time to watching, to attending conventions, to you know listening to uh, podcasts, all these kind of things. You know, you, you or, or you know any any extra thing. You 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 feel that sense of commitment to it. And I think I'm not saying it's an entitlement necessarily, but I think I think you you want to give back. You want to contribute. You want to put. And you know, even if you're the worst writer in the world, I think <laughs> the very fact you you make you make that effort. You know, I, I don't. I don't think really fan fiction is about being a great writer. I think it's about being somebody who just wants to communicate their their love and passion for the subject matter. Really, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's about people, as you said, who are passionate about this world that they're seeing, either on television or reading in a book or watching in a film, um, and that they're identifying with the characters and they're feeling like perhaps maybe they're not getting everything that they need from the original source material so they're going to embellish it in their own time in their own way Mm. it's kind of a way in which fans can speak back to the original source material so Mm. it does feel like a little bit of a dialogue to me between fans and the creators of a show or a a film or or a franchise and i think at the time when star trek fan fiction first started being written i think that is something well i know that's something that was actually happening. It was a dialogue between fans and, 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 and the writers. So the, the first ever sort of Star Trek fan fiction that came around was um, in Star Trek fanzines, which were magazines, physical mag- magazines that were produced by fans. They were printed and mailed to other fans or sold at science fiction conventions. The first one was called Spockanalia and came out in 1967. And after that, there were quite a few fanzines after that came out in the 1970s and like, I would say probably even to the early 1980s, a huge amount of the fan fiction writers at that time to do with Star Trek, which is really interesting. You know, you know, one of the most interesting things about it is as well that the majority of them were women. That 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 that's fascinating. You know, that is that is a fascinating fact that you know, and, and you know, you get a lot of female Star Trek fans. You know, it's a really it's it's always been a very inclusive franchise. I think in that way, 
You know, you, you do have that. But it's great that, that women at that time were feeling like they could they could write and communicate their love from the show, you know, in, a, in, a, in an age where there were still a lot of barriers. You know, I know there still are a lot of barriers for women actually breaking, especially with entertainment. But I think, I think that, that's a great fact, you know, because it all kind of started with Star Trek, didn't it? And, you know, you mentioned the historical examples and things like that. But fandom, fan fiction and fandom as we know it, you know, it, Star Trek is, is a big touchstone for where we've ended up, really, isn't it, with all this? And the fact that the majority of the women who started writing this fan fiction about Star Trek were writing about Spock is really interesting as well. I mean, mm. so when the writers and the creators of Star, of Star Trek first started making the show, they thought that Kirk would be the big draw for women. And when it turned out to be Spock, they actually paid attention to that. Um, and they wrote more storylines that contained Spock and Kirk and McCoy. Um, and they focused slightly more on Spock sometimes. I mean, they paid attention to what the fans were actually writing in these zines. So there was like a, like a two-way relationship. I'm not sure you'd get that with every fan fiction now because there's so much out there. Do you, do you think with Spock, though, it's, it's a little bit, you know, as a woman... Do you think? I mean, I, I think that makes sense in this. In the, uh, in some respects, Kirk is written from the male gaze, isn't he? You know, he's got that level of oh, flirtatious, swaggering captain. And I, I think women would find Spock more interesting as a man. You know, as, as a man to explore and as a character ex- to explore, because there is there is more depth to the guy, really. So that that doesn't surprise me. It's funny. Some of the women that wrote about some of these fanzines um, and wrote about Spock actually had written fanzines before that to do with Sherlock Holmes and there is kind of a link between Spock and Sherlock they are both I would say quite um, emotionally restrained men I think it's that idea that women had when they watched the show like and to a certain extent extent, I'd imagine like some of the female characters in the series had which was that they just kind of wanted to, <laughs> kind of wanted to see Spock kind of break if you see what I'm saying like they wanted to see <laughs> Spock kind of get passionate you know this idea of this very restrained man and they wanted to see him get passionate and, and maybe the writers didn't feel they could put that in the series as much as the fans wanted to see it although there's plenty of episodes where Spock kind of loses it at certain points right I'm like time yeah I'm, I'm thinking of other situations like Operation Annihilate I suppose he sort of has in pain or whatever, so mm. it goes a bit crazy. So they wrote these lengthy stories, um, or sometimes even short stories, sometimes even poems, where they're sort of talking about Spock's inner feelings. And perhaps maybe there's certain something there, rather than just a sort of attractive element to women, um, of finding a man who it seems very restrained, but it's really quite an emotional being. Perhaps also that's maybe about how they felt a little bit. I don't know, in a society where women are expected to present a certain, especially in the 60s, a certain outward persona. Perhaps it, maybe women's feeling, intense feelings were not really, uh, uh, they didn't feel able to express them. So maybe they identified with Spock. It could be. I mean, it, it, I think I think one of the things with fandom, uh, fan fi- I keep saying fandom, Well, I, I, which is, <laughs> we are talking about fandom, but I keep saying fandom instead of fan fiction. One of the things with fan fiction, I think, is people choose quite often to, to focus on very specific characters for very specific reasons. You know, they... They do it because they they find uh, something in those characters. Quite often, I think that they that resonates with them. That they want to they want to communicate. I mean, you know, famously, one of the most famous recent examples of fan fiction was uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Originally, which was which was about Bella and Edward from Twilight. You know, the Twilight series. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then of course it it was to prevent copyright problems. It was retooled by E. L. James. May they were called Christian and Anna, and then it became this. For, be- for better or worse, 
this global phenomenon of, of erotic, you know, literature or whatever, and movies and all this kind of thing, and it's made her a fortune. But it, that that started from a place where she wanted to tell a very specific kind of story about specific specific characters in a specific world. So I think you find that in Star Trek fan fiction quite often. Whatever the starting point is, whether it's any of these strange genres that we come at, you know, whether it's a, a gay love story between Kirk and Spock or anything like that. These I think I think writers come at it from that perspective because they they have an inner need to communicate feelings of their own. So I think your point about Spock and and that you know that that what they're trying to find in writing about him, I think he's true, really, and I think that's true of a lot of fan fiction. And this slash fan fiction is really interesting because that's actually something that started in the seventies and, and almost almost immediately as the show. Actually, even in the sixties, when the show started being aired, people started feeling inspired to write these slash fan fiction stories about Kirk and Spock. And um, Gene Roddenberry kind of makes a nod to it in the actual novelization of star trek the motion picture there's a footnote in that in in that novelization where he sort of uh makes a little reference to the fact that both somebody at some point has confronted both kirk and spock about this close relationship they have and both of them have kind of seemed a little amused by the whole thing you know as in like (laughs) it's a rumor going around starfleet or whatever and somebody's amused so if so none of the writers i'd think or even gene roddenberry himself could have been immune to this and i think that's really interesting because this is really before well it's not it wasn't i don't think it was gay men writing this sort of slash fan fiction the majority of it is straight women and that's a really interesting phenomenon and slash fan fiction now is huge even for every genre you could possibly imagine like if you wanted to find slash fan fiction to do with i don't know the x-files which i think is really weird but anyway <laughs> the x-files yeah. or or like harry potter or twilight and include in fact one of the most awful written and i haven't read it i must admit but one of the most awful written it's like well known for being the worst written fan fiction online um which is a big sto- a big story to do with harry potter and sort of Harry Potter has kind of changed gender and Draco Malfoy is involved and it's very apparently very smutty. Yeah. He's, this person's actually got a book deal now. So <laughs> in the sense of like, almost like Elroy, Elroy James, almost in the sense of, of, of Fifty Shades of Grey. So what I think really is it's fans are not just silently consuming a TV series or a film or a type of entertainment they are then building a, an active conversation into their consumption of this by writing fan fiction that changes people's relationship to the stories themselves and they expand and build on the original fictional world. Well, I mean, if, if, you, take, if you take Kirk and Spock, for instance, as characters, I mean, I, I think most Star Trek fans would be hard pushed to deny that they are in some respects in love with each other. I mean, I, I, would, I would argue that. I think there is a, they are in love with each other, but I don't see it in the sense of, you know a, a homosexual sexual element to it you know it's it's a it's a brotherly love i think it's you, you know you see it a lot in the films and especially um the final frontier you know that that film is all about how much kirk loves spock in many ways you know you they, there's there's loads of, of moments where you know william shatner is just gazing at leonard nimoy <laughs> a lot of this thing <laughs> you know and it, sort of at the end of the search for spock as well you know and it's lot it's lovely but it, it's fan fiction is it's interesting how people will take that one step further you know and and they will take that and they will write these you know these very homoerotic or these very very explicit quite often you know especially in slash fiction these very explicit stories about them actually having sex with each other and and and, and all this and it's it's interesting why people do that you know what like i said before what need 
do they have to communicate that kind of story when it's not really in it's not really in the the shows it's not really in the movies there is there is a a certain undercurrent of love there between these characters for instance to use those two as, as an example but you know the, sh- the shows and movies were certainly would never go there for for a, for a number of reasons really so it's interesting that people feel that with fan fiction they they want to develop that in in that very specific way and that that's and like you say it, it happens in all kinds of in all kinds of especially harry potter which i think is a bit creepy because uh, <laughs> it's a children's it's a children's story at the yeah, end of the day isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. No, i think that's a bit creepy yeah more than a bit creepy but it, it's it's the psychology of that kind of fan fiction which i i find very interesting really i mean i guess the point is that people's tastes are are wide-ranging and that what people find uh, erotic or attractive or interesting is a sliding scale so the, the idea is that i guess it's people writing stories and doing things with the original characters and worlds that the creators and the tv writers wouldn't or couldn't do for one reason or another like for instance portraying some sort of like homosexual relationship on screen or whatever And so people take that into their own hands and write whatever they want. I do sort of feel like fan fiction, if you walk, if you walk into a fan fiction site online, it is a little bit like walking into a supermarket (laughs) where there's a huge amount of food that looks attractive and interesting. And then there's just a huge amount of food that you are just never going to even touch, you know? Um, uh, But you know, there's going to be someone out there who's really going to want to eat that food that you're not going to want to touch. It's like, there's like something for everyone. Uh, so in a way, I think a little bit it's taking um, perhaps maybe a television or film franchise that on screen fits everybody to a certain extent, but isn't a perfect fit. And then people take that that's, that franchise and they mould it to perfectly fit them and their own desires, if you see what I'm saying, and their own interests mm. through, fan, through fan fiction. Yeah, you, you get that a lot. I mean, if you only have to look at fanfiction.net, which is probably the biggest... Um, fan fiction site in the world online, which has been going since the internet really became a thing. I think it was 1998 that fanfiction.net came online. You know, and the stuff I've written is on there. There's, there are things, not a lot of stuff, but there's definitely stuff on there that I wrote back in the day. I don't know if it's if it's Star Trek necessarily, or if it, there's certainly one other thing that isn't Star Trek that I remember writing that went down fairly well, actually, I think. But yeah, I, it, you look on that, and it's just this vast, this vast trove of information and, and story. A lot of which will be badly written, let's be honest. A lot of which doesn't have any technical ability at all. But it, I think you're absolutely right in that they're, you know, it, it is them taking and doing with that franchise what they want to see. With Star Trek, quite often, you find people... I've, I've noticed with, with fan fiction with Star Trek, there's a very specific agenda that they want to get across, which quite often is either either continuing the stories of the characters that we already know or or creating a setting that they want a Star Trek series to be placed in. So quite often you will get post-Voyager fiction because a lot, of, a lot of fans always wanted to see a TV show set after Voyager, set in like the 25th century or whatever. Or you'll get continuations of things like Deep Space Nine or you'll get continuations of Voyager or Enterprise or those kind of things. It's it's people wanting to extend, even though these things have all, all happened, you know, these things have all happened in the, in the, um, the non-canonical extended universe books you know, it's still happening. You've still got writers like Dayton Ward and David Mack and all these people continuing these worlds. But a lot of fans, it's not necessarily gone the way they would have wanted. It's not necessarily the story they would want to tell. And that's what fan fiction allows them to do, 
is to communicate that. And they'll do, you know, the amount of depth. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you've, you've looked into it, Clara. The amount of detail. The, 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 these people write novels. It's quite extraordinary, really. I mean, yeah, you can actually go onto fanfiction.net and you can find, like you said, full novel length um, stories. And then you yeah. can find something that is like, uh, it's called a drabble, I think is what they call the term for it, where it's just uh, a few thousand words of a particular scene or the thoughts of a character in a sit- one situation, which can also be nice as well. So I did a little bit of research <laughs> to do with, to do, I did a little bit of looking up of different. You've had a fun weekend, Star Trek, Star Trek series. <laughs> so I went onto fanfiction.net, and I want to emphasise there are lots of other fanfiction websites. I only looked at two because you know, I mean, I only have a certain amount of time. And once you start <laughs> researching this, you know, I mean, I could have been there for years looking. You at have, a life, Clara, you I have a life, I have a life, I have a life. I had, I had, I had X fanfiction to read. No. Um, <laughs> So the the one with the least amount of stories on fanfiction.net was Deep Space Nine, but that was still 1,900 stories. Yes. So that's that's still a considerable amount of stories. pretty good, yeah. The next one was Next Generation, which had 4.5K stories. Mm -hmm. Um, The original series was 6.7K. And you'll notice that these numbers go up based on whether or not if there's a rerun of one of the series on television right. or if there's a movie that comes out that has Kirk and Spock in it or whatever, um, you'll notice that people will get inspired again by the series and then go back and write something. But the one that had the most, well, Voyager had 9.7K. So I didn't look wow. up Enterpri- Enterprise. That was silly. I didn't look up Enterprise. Didn't have any. Um, I didn't have any. <laughs> Discovery only had a few. Discovery had like 200 or something. It's early but that's days. because it's, it's early days. It's early days. Yeah. Discovery's going to have a lot. The movies, so the Star Trek Kelvin universe had 14.1K pieces of wow. fan fiction in the archive, ranging in all different lengths. Wow. But if you go to another fan fiction website called Archive of Our Own, which is a slightly less it's a slightly more um fluid type of fan fiction archive in the sense that archive of our own has more explicit material sometimes than fanfiction.net and i think they have less rules about what you can post and what you can't post i typed in star trek in the search engine and i found fifty three thousand seven hundred and seven story entries good god so people are definitely writing about star trek on a regular basis and and, you know there'd be no way you'd be able to keep up with that. I mean, that, that, is, that is hundreds and hundreds of books, <laughs> yeah. you know, worth of, of material. And it's, it, it's, it's just this enormous, you know, ma- trove, this, this mountain of, of, of people's ideas. And, you know, and, and, you know, you'd find, I imagine, a lot of similar ideas. You know, you find a lot of, a lot of things revolve around uh, a ship and a crew. And, you, you know, you'll have, you'll have them facing the same kind of threats or it will be about setting a specific area of space. You know, and a lot of the time people rehash ideas that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily get on, on TV. I, I'd be surprised if you'd find anyone writing in fan fiction over the last 10 years, what we saw in discovery. I'd, I'd be surprised because discovery has gone into areas that, you know, I don't think we expected things like the mycelial network. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone would have, quite honestly written that in that way so you know it, it, it fan fiction has a certain circularity and, and cyclical you know repetition to it i find it when i have read and i have looked into things so it's it would be it's a massive mountain of stories but i, I think you would you would probably find about one or two percent of them were truly worth 
the time of reading. You know what I mean? Or, or would be as good as something actually being produced by Pocketbooks or one of these, you know, official licensed kind of Star Trek outlets. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that um, they do tend to fall into similar tropes and similar trends again and again. And there are genres of fan fiction. There's like angst fan fiction and um, alternative universe fan fiction where, you know, the crew, the, the, the house of DS9 are all like in an American high school. I tend to stay away from those types of stories because I... I don't want an alternative universe where Kira and Sister yeah. are like a, a science lab buddies or something. Um, <laughs> there's crossover fan fiction where, you know, Yoda will be meeting Spock, which is just confusing. There's fluff fan fiction. <laughs> fluff, fluff fan fiction is really big in genres like maybe slightly darker genres. Fluff would be stuff like um, much bigger in, in shows like The X-Files where it's mm. a story designed to be happy and nothing else so plot isn't very relevant so it's like Kirk and Spock go and get ice cream together or something <laughs> <laughs> just get the I mean, replicator you know did they have re- I don't know if they had replicators in the original series but they must have had some easier way to do that you know than, <laughs> and actually it probably wouldn't be Kirk and Spock it would probably be Deep Space Nine it would probably be because it has to be a darker kind of show yeah. you know it would be like Trip or, or Enterprise Trip comes back from the dead and <laughs> Trip and Paul have like five babies, um, you know, and they go and live on a cloud or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, that's what fluff is. Or and then there's hurt and comfort, which is where a character gets injured on an away mission and someone takes care of them. And lots of people love hurt comfort stories because I think there's this feeling in Star Trek that perhaps maybe emotional trauma isn't very well portrayed, and so mm. they want to, you know, they want the emotional trauma of the characters to be shown after this traumatic stuff that happens in the series the shipping which as you and i well know didn't start with star trek shipping started with the x-files but shipping is huge in fandoms it's where people are actively encouraging and wishing for a relationship between two characters who perhaps maybe sometimes can have like a sexual tension between them or in some time some cases there's nothing there and still fans are like (laughs) are like obsessed with them becoming a couple let's let's create a romance between dax and odo that's definitely something uh, i really i really ship them Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um uh, yes sometimes it does get a bit painful smart Smut, which is always always interesting. Smut is sexually explicit or pornographic yeah. writing. And sometimes there's a plot and sometimes there's no plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's porn, th- th- there shouldn't be a plot. Let's be honest. No, what's the point in having a plot? You know, just, just be honest about it. <laughs> and there's a surprising amount of Star Trek porn. <laughs> As yeah. you can imagine um, all sorts of different tastes there. Um, and then there's things like songfic. I, I struggle with stuff like songfic where someone's written a fictional song about <laughs> the Star Trek, Star Trek Enterprise. Um, and sometimes they can be verses of verses and verses, or sometimes they can be a short song. Um, <laughs> and I always think, well, I don't really want to read a song. I want someone to write a song about Star Trek yeah. and then I want them to put it to music and then I want to hear them sing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the so end surprise <laughs> is a nice Star Trek ship. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'll never do um, that again. I'm sorry. <laughs> so sometimes these things, um, so, yeah, so like you said, these on fan fiction sites stories are often sorted into these categories so there is a uniformity amongst fan fiction despite the fact that it's very varied 
and there's, a, there's like lots of different things out there, lots of different tastes and something for everyone. You're right, it is often slotted into a particular type of genre. And generally, generally the long fan fiction stories, who, that, like you said, are very big world-building stories that encompass a whole plot, the kind that you would find in a Star Trek novel or the kind that you would find in a series or in a film, they don't fit into those easily defined genres. Uh, and that actually leads me onto this question to ask you a little bit about some of the fan fiction that you've written in your life. So, like, why you decided to write it and what inspired you, um, maybe specifically, like, initially to do with, like, the Premonition Timeship series. Yeah, so around, it was probably probably getting on for 10 years ago now. Uh, in fact, it was longer in the planning process. To cut a long story short, I was part, and I still am part, of a writer's website it was called monster zero productions and it's undergoing a it still exists you can still find it at uh, if you type in mzp tv on google but it's under, undergoing a bit of a you know a facelift and it's, it's having a bit of a reimagining but the, the scripts are still on there and it was a script based website so it wasn't actually prose you know most of what you find or pretty much all of what you find on fanfiction.net and those kind of places it's prose you know it's like reading a book what we used to do on mzp was write scripts and I did this for years. You know, I wrote entire, I wrote an entire five season, hundred plus episode spin-off to Alias, the spy TV series from the early two thousands. Things like that. I wrote an X Files miniseries, concluding the series before, yeah, before the show came back. Things like that. I wrote loads of stuff. Uh, I wrote, I even wrote like a, a, a female Doctor Who story series before. We had Jodie Whittaker <laughs> about to become the female <laughs> oh, doctor. Man. I, I was years ahead idea. of the curve. I was years ahead, <laughs> Clara, with that. And so I, you know, I wrote quite a bit of, of this kind of stuff as well as original things. But it was a very different kind of website because it, we were writing about we were writing scripts. You know, we were writing from the idea production model of a TV show, and we would have writers' rooms, and we'd have showrunners, and we'd have staff writers. You know, like they do, like they do on on a, a TV. And we fa- we we used to have something called fantasy casting, so we'd have We'd imagine the kind of actors who would be playing these roles and things like that. And we would, we just went, we, it was a really good, fun few years we were doing this. And um, and I, I, I'd had this idea for years about Premonition, which was which was about a time ship. And it was off the back of an episode of Voyager. And I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of Voyager, really. I like some of it. I've mentioned before, I think, on, on the show. Um, but I'm not massively into it, really. But I loved an episode called Relativity, which I think was season five of Voyager. Um, in which Seven of Nine gets beamed up by the USS Relativity, which is like a 29th century timeship. And she has to go back. I think I think it's going back to when Voyager was in dry dock and there's a conspiracy to blow it up, something like that. And she has to go back in time and sneak in and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I thought that was a great, that was a great episode. And, you know, you'd had the timeship Eon, I think, in Future's End as well with Captain Braxton and all that kind of stuff. So I liked the fact that Voyager created this idea of a, 29th century Federation future in which they can travel through time as well as space. And I thought that is a great idea for a show, I think, a time ship. And I had basic ideas and I brainstormed it for quite a few years. And I wrote it in about 2010, 2011, something like that. And I wrote the full first season and some of the second season. I had it mapped out like seasons three and four as well. And the basic premise was that the premonition was on the face of it, a working time ship. It was going into different time zones, both Trek future history and future future, if you see what I mean. So it was 
some some episodes will be set in like the 26th, 26th century, 27th century. Some were set in the 21st or some were set in the 20th. I did a revisionist version of both the Wrath of, well, not Wrath of Khan, but the Khan origin story. And the, uh, if anyone's, if, I don't know if you've ever read the Eugenics Wars novels by Greg Cox, Clara. Are you familiar with them? I am familiar with them, but I haven't actually read them myself. They're really good. They're really good. Greg's, uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking to Greg about X-Files um, books before. He's a, lo- he's a lovely guy. And he wrote, he's written some, written some brilliant novels for Star Trek. And he wrote uh, some great Khan novels called the Eugenics Wars. So this kind of came off the back of his novels as well as, you know, as well as uh, as Khan's story and things like that. So I did lots of different things with it. And I had a, a diverse, I had a Herogian captain and I had, you know, a Vulcan, uh, half Vulcan, half Betazoid doctor. You know, there was quite a, a range of people. And then the, the main characters were a human man from the tw- from just after Enterprise. So it spanned really from the 21st century to the 29th century. And it ultimately is about a conspiracy within the Federation. The Federation has basically been corrupted in the 29th century and the premonition is essentially on the run, um, pretending to be a Starfleet vessel when the Federation is this dark force in the future. A bit like a, a bit sort of like Mirror Universe, you know, a bit Terran Empire, but it's actually the Federation. And, you know, it, it had a lot of scope to it. And in the end, one of the ultimate plans was that in the third season, it was going they were going to get be, they were going to be thrown 500,000 years back in time to the ancient empires that we've seen in like various Star Trek shows, like the Tacone and the, or um, the Iconians and things like that. And we'd have done a whole season set in the past, which would have been really fun. But I think one of the things I loved about it was it felt to me like the world was your oyster as a writer, you know, in Star Trek and you were able to do different things. And I always, I've always wanted to see what the future was going to be. I always wanted to explore more of the 29th century. I always wanted to know what happened after Voyager. But at the same time, I also loved all the temporal Cold War stuff. You know, this this gets into that, this show. You know, I, I, I've I got my own idea of who Future Guy was in Enterprise, which was never quite revealed. And that all ties in and everything. So it's, as a writer, to go back to your original question, after a million years of setup, my, um, <laughs> the reason I did it, the reason I, I wrote Premonition was because I wanted to answer some of these questions. And I wanted to, I wanted to know who Future Guy was. I wanted to know what was going on in the 29th century. I wanted to, I wanted to know more about the Earth Romulan War, you know, and, and all, and, and all of these things. And I wanted to, I loved time travel stories in Star Trek. I wanted to do a show about time and space. So I think it's, it goes back to what I was saying about other fan fiction writers in that I wanted, to know things about this world and to create my own version of it. And ultimately, when I look back, and I've, I've, re- I've reread Premonition in, oh, a fair bit of Premonition in advance of this recording. And I've got to be honest, I was writing this around the time Lost was coming to an end, and I'm a massive Lost fan. It's a bit lost in places. <laughs> it's, oh, there's, there's, there's a bit too much of, you know, there's a bit too much needless sort of arcane mystery, really. And it's very serialized and it's got a lot of, you know, plots like that. And if I, if I could see my time over again, I would have took a, I would have taken a lot of that out and I'd have, I'd have reworked it in a big way. But the, the central core idea, I still think is a good one. And it, and it still goes back to why I think for me, it was wanting to, it was wanting to answer these questions for myself because I don't think we'll ever get them in the show. I don't think we will get a 29th century timeship series. I don't think we will ever see the Earth Romulan War. So 
I think that was why I did it. I think one of the things that when I was looking into um, this fan fiction that you'd written, I think one of the things that excited me about it was, like you said, was the the idea of um, exploring space, but also exploring time at the same time, which is something that Star Trek has played with, but not really delved into as deeply as it could have. Mm. So that was exciting. But also the, 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 the idea that you created a character who was scarred by war and so one of the things that really a character that has this like a sort of a deep and complex psychological makeup Mm. you know like a fully rounded person who has actual uh, i would say perhaps maybe a more realistic deep psychology um Mm. that uh, uh, that feels a little bit more real to me than some of the star trek characters who don't get me wrong i love star trek but one of the things i've always found slightly lacking in star trek that i've really sort of struggled with um, which I haven't always found lacking in other types of sci-fi, is this um, this resilience. And I think it's because this is episodic television. And episodic television, you have to move on to the next story next week, don't you really? I mean, Discovery is mm. different in this, in this respect because it's one long story told over um, a series of episodes, like a mythic mm. arc. But in, in, in a TV series where each episode is a, is a different story, which can be fun and in- interesting, characters have to kind of get over whatever they're going through or whatever happens in that episode and move on to the next one. And this is something I kind of struggled a little bit with Voyager. Though they do explore the effects of being so far from home and they do explore their emotions and, you know, in particular, like Captain Janeway does exhibit signs of depression because of the fact that she's made this decision to doom her crew to light years of travel away from home. I feel like there was always a reset button. Do you know what I mean? And each, in each, yeah. in each episode, um, they sort of almost started anew. And anything that kind of affected them in previous episodes never really had like a long-standing effect. I kind of wanted to know more about the psychologies of the characters. So although space travel is incredibly exciting to me, and scientific travel, uh, scientific scientific development and discovery is incredibly exciting and interesting. It, it's also the motivations and the thoughts and the feelings of the characters that's always really interested me. And that's something that I think I find in fan fiction that I don't always find in Star Trek that I'm watching. Like, why are they doing this? Why, what, they, what are they thinking when they're going through this, you know? And so when I saw that, like, your, your main character has a past... You know, an interesting past. He's not just starting like a fresh recruit straight out of, out of Starfleet, straight out of, the, uh, out of the academy. That was something that attracted me. And I wondered if that was something that you were trying to write when you were writing fan fiction, any of the fan fiction you've written. Like, so the virtual Star Trek st- script series or the Deep Space Nine continuation. Like, are you trying to also write about the, the sort of inner, th- inner thinking of the characters themselves as well? Well, I think with, with it being script based, there is a there is a difference in how you write it in that you don't get it has to come through the dialogue you know you don't get into the the thought process and part of me actually especially having talking about it now with you makes me want to go back and actually re- maybe have a, maybe write some of the premonition stuff as prose to to explore some of these characters a little bit more and you know but at, at the same time i think what one of the one of the things I always used to do when I was writing scripts was I would I would block out I'd do a storyboard and I would block out in extreme de- I would essentially write out the story not quite as prose but I would write it in a lot of depth and each scene then would be written into script form based on that outline which could run sometimes up to twenty pages of you know actual writing on word and in that 
you almost get into not quite as I say prose, but you get into the thought processes of why these characters are doing it in terms of the story and everything like that. So the main character of Premonition is called Bo. He's not a Starfleet officer, as you say. He's a former soldier in who, who, who served in the Earth Romulan War, I think it is, um, because this is set just after the around the point. I think it's either before, just before the Federation's formed, or just after. I can't quite remember my own stuff actually, but it's. Um, it's in the mid 22nd century anyway. So he's he's like the characters on Enterprise. He's a much more human, relatable character in some respects as we saw in later Star Trek shows. And oddly enough, I, I think, I'm not trying to take credit here and say I'm some sort of genius, but like Burnham, he wasn't a main character. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't a captain, you know. <laughs> the main character wasn't a captain in this, in this show. And I like the idea of coming into this idea and this saga as, you know, in, 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 in a lot of... In a lot of great TV shows, you have an entry. You have an entry point as a, as a viewer, as a, as the audience. You come into a story from a certain perspective, like in the X Files, as we talked about before. Your entry point is Scully. You know, Scully goes into this world where Mulder has this office and he has this these files, and he's already got a big backstory. He's already got years of looking into all this weirdness. But we come into this story from her. You know, somebody who's new who doesn't understand it. In Premonition, I wanted to come into into that world. That we already know, but we don't at the same time because they're a 29th century timeship. We don't know anything about that. So even a Star Trek fans, that's new territory. We've only seen them briefly in various shows. So he was our entry point into this very different kind of setup um, with a temporal warp drive and things like that. So I thought that was important. In, so, in, in Different from a prose script uh, piece of writing where you would get into the thought processes of the characters, with a script-based series, it was getting into the story from a certain perspective, which allows you to then explore the characters through the dialogue and things like that. And it was, I suppose in some respects, it was similar for the, I did a, I did a, a briefly, I did a Deep Space Nine continuation series years before, years before Premonition. And it, it, that was slightly different, obviously, because you're taking a lot of characters that already exist. But again, like, like the novels, you had to come into it from a point of view where Cisco's not in it. You know, at first, so it, it's you have to come into it from a certain perspective there as well. So I think that's always very interesting, whether you're writing script or prose. And the majority of fan fiction is prose. Let's let's be honest. What we were doing was fairly niche even for this. But I think yeah. it, it is all about perspectives. Would say that even with writing script prose, you can um, not script prose, script fan fiction, and not prose, you can actually delve into the characters like thoughts and feelings so ds9 is a very good example of this i mean i was just criticizing star trek for not delving into characters psychology but actually ds9 is really good when it comes to delving into character psychology especially with with regards to like the friendship between miles and julian or like the psychology of, of cisco himself and how he feels about being the emissary to the psychology of of kira dealing with her past as um, sort of like a terrorist stroke freedom fighter for mm. Bajor and her feelings about the Cardassians. So in a script, you're right, this character has to say it all. They have to explicitly say it all. Unless, of course, it's being um, acted by the actors in terms of facial expression or body language. But with fan fiction scripts, you don't have the actors there, do you? So it's not no. visual. It's something that's written down. So you have to write it into a script. So it, it has to be said by the characters explicitly in some way or other, but there are clever ways in which to do that without it seeming like 
like without a character having a voiceover, which I think sometimes <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about voices, voiceovers. I think of Blade Runner. You know, what I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where they can really yeah. go down badly. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> like you can send people to sleep. So. In a way, I think fan, Star Trek fan fiction is about several different things. Like you said, it's about exploring the continuation on of the series, the series that essentially ended with time-wise, ended with Voyager, or the continuation of, like, say, Star Trek Enterprise, where it ended with the Federation being created, and like, so what happened in that gap between that and Discovery? And it can also explore new different types of science like a ship that can trans you know go back and forward in time to perhaps maybe political changes so a federation becoming a dark force or uh some sort of uh, like alliance between two different alien worlds or whatever but it can also explore i would say the development of the personalities of the characters as well um who are they going to become what is going to happen to them and a lot of the Star Trek novels, like the Titan novels, do explore the psychology of Riker as captain, which is something that we never really get to see in any of the series or the films, because he doesn't really become captain until the end of Nemesis, does he? No. And so the Titan novels do explore how he deals with being captain, um, just like the the novels, the Voyager novels that have come been published since the series has, has finished, sort of explore the psychology of Chakotay being in love with Captain Janeway. Oh, she's an admiral yeah. then, though, isn't she? She's an admiral. Ab- yeah, Admiral Janeway, yeah. And I never thought of Chakotay as someone who would suffer from a huge amount of emotional turmoil. But then in the novels, he like has a breakdown at one point, um, yeah. very visibly, like on the middle in the middle of the bridge. And that's something I never would have imagined in the series. But then he's, his character's obviously developed over time through the, the novels. Now, that is not fan fiction. That is actual sanctioned Star Trek published fiction, although I think it's non-canon, isn't it? It's sort of like extended universe, but, you know, if you had... It would be a bit like how when Disney came in and bought Star Wars and they said, right, we're going to make episode seven, you know, The Force Awakens, years and years of extended universe novels, which continued the story of the Skywalker family, were basically said, okay, that's that's an AU now, that's an alternate universe, that's not canon, it's never been official, it's just another... You know, and tons of fans were furious about that. And, and I, th- I think you would find, you know, that people have been following these these ongoing novels, you know, things like Star Trek Destiny and all this, this incredibly complex storytelling that's been going on for a decade or more now, following the end of Nemesis and Voyager. And I think you'd find a lot of fans would be really frust- frustrated in some respects if, if a new Star Trek series set post-Voyager came in and, and said, that, that, that's, not, that's not what happens at all, right? This is a completely different timeline because you know they're still working they haven't even got in those in those um time books to the hoba supernova yet which is obviously what causes the kelvin timeline you know the destruction of romulus they haven't even got there yet they're still building towards that so they're filling in the blanks in a massive way over these years and i suppose it brings up the question doesn't it is it fan fiction you know even if it is licensed it's not canon you know no that, that could that could be rolled over and erased if they did one day finish Discovery and say, right, we're going to make 25th century Star Trek, you know, would would a lot of fans be frustrated? Would, you know, would certain of these characters, you know, would you have an older Kate Mulgrew appear in, in, in a, as, as Admiral Janeway and she's, you know, she's not with Chakotay or, or all this kind of thing? Would it annoy fans? Because a lot of these novels, these time novels, have taken points from the show, from the shows or from the movies that they didn't like and they've done different things with them. Admiral Janeway and Chakotay is a, is a great example. 
At the end of Voyager, Chakotay's supposed to end up with Seven of Nine, but nobody believed that romance for one minute, <laughs> did they? So, no. that, and, and even in episodes like, I think it was Resolutions, where you have that Janeway and Chakotay episode where they're, they're I think they're, they're kind of living in this house, aren't they? Or they're stranded on a planet or something. And they really, they, they, they get quite close. And that's the closest I think they get to a point where they could be romantic. But the writers never went there, even though in some respects it would have been fascinating to see the first officer and the captain in a relationship and struggling with that while trying to get their crew home. But then let's not go into all the things that Voyager didn't do because that's another podcast in itself. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's that kind of thing. They took that nugget and that chemistry that was visible on screen and then they did an entire storyline with it, you know, or they, they were more interested in going down that route. So I think it might not be fan fiction as we know it, Clara, but I think fans see it in that way just more official i think fans see it in that way but i think i think they see it as more official partly because i think it actually does make money and i think the whole idea is that most people who write fan fiction know that they will never make any money from it like they will even if they self-publish they know that there's not going to be i mean in order to self-publish you'd have to i imagine get permission from cbs right or paramount or one of those i know it's not going to make them money i think when something starts making a fan money then it can become problematic and that's where you get you know issues with lawsuits and stuff like that but you've got you have you're making a very legitimate point because a lot of the people who write the star trek books are fans themselves exactly and you you can tell because of the depth of detail they put into the books and they sometimes invite, invent new characters that are truly unusual, interesting characters. Uh, Duncan has talked about this before in other episodes about characters that have, you know, that are like intersex or, or characters that don't have a gender. I think in one of the one of the actual novels, there's even a hoarder who might be might be. I think he's, I think there's a hoarder who's serving on one of the ships. And if you think about the hoarder originally was uh, appeared it was really originally written into the original series as as a threat and then perhaps maybe decades and decades of his- star trek history later they've actually managed to enlist a horter in the academy and now <laughs> horter is now serving in starfleet i was like how does that work but you know i mean <laughs> yeah and, and so they write these sort of exceptionally interesting alien um starfleet officers that perhaps would be difficult to show on screen due to yeah the fact that you'd have to use special effects and it would be all kind of difficult to and expensive to create that. So the fact that they've written these kinds of types of characters, they've written these stories and they've also made it such so, so vivid, they have to be Star Trek fans. They have to be at least interested, yeah. you know, which suggests it is kind of like a fan fiction. The difference with fan fiction is the difference between fan fiction and, and actual published novels is I would imagine you'd have an editor you know, you'd have yeah. you have you have a publisher. I know fan fictions have fan fiction writers do often have beta beta readers, so they have people that help them and read their stuff and correct it. There is a lot of fan fiction out there that has a lot of grammatical errors or spelling errors, or actually is needs that just basically needs to be edited. And that's not something you sh- you would expect to find in a published novel. No, no, that that's the difference. It's the it's the quality threshold. It's the fact these are paid working writers. They they're good. On the, on the majority of them are good. And yeah, it is licensed, you know, like you say, it is licensed and they can they can go into it. But they have a lot, you know, they, I think they do have a lot of freedom in many many respects. You know, they have, because they're not restricted by a TV, a TV series, there are certain things they have to, they have to account for, you know. In, in, in developing those novels, they have to be aware that Romulus will be destroyed in 22, 23, 80, whatever it is. They know that, that they can't ignore that. that that's, that's a fixed point of canon. 
you know. So it's working around those things. And, they, you know, they have, I think they have a lot of license to kind of do that, really. And that's, and that's something that fan fiction writers have. They can, do, they can go wherever they want. You know, fan fiction writers can, can ignore Hobus. They can rewrite the plot of Star Trek 09 so Spock never dies. So Romulus doesn't, you know, they can do all these things. They can create their own version of it and they can spend tons of time building their own version of the Star Trek universe, their own corner, their own crews, their own ships. You know, and, and what's what I find really interesting as well is that there's been a lot of fan fiction crop up around Star Trek Online, the online v- video game, which I've played and I've enjoyed quite a bit over the years. But there's now fan fiction. I mean, there's even tied novels to that now. You know, Star Trek Online tie-in novels about the game itself and the backstory of that game itself and the backstory they created for Star Trek Online was fantastic. You know, that built up to the point of I think Hobus and beyond. And it's great. If you, anyone goes on the uh, the website and reads that, it's fantastic reading. It's a really, really good timeline. And then the game takes place, I think it's like 2408 or something like that. But yeah, there's fan fiction about that now. So it, it's, it, it really is that license to go wherever you want and they're not, there's no restrictions by it. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons why you do get creators who hate <laughs> fan fiction <laughs> For that very reason, I don't know if any any, any there's any particular Star Trek creatives who do necessarily, but in, in, in part that's because the, the the man who created Star Trek obviously has been dead for a long time, and he didn't. It, Star Trek has always been one of those shows that has had a lot of different creative input, you know, from various different people, not, most of whom didn't create it in the first place. So it's a different kind of thing than, say, someone like George R. R. Martin, who hates fan fiction and thinks it's a waste of people's time, but he created something that he's he has complete control over in the, in the novel world. Anne Rice was another one, and Anne McCaffrey. They hate they hated fan fiction, be precisely because I mean they even those two even told fan fiction net to take anything from Interview with a Vampire and all those kind of things down because they they didn't want them. You know they didn't want them up there. So it's different, I think, for different levels of creatives. And with Star Trek, I don't think if you're not selling the work, if you're not making money on it, I don't think they mind, quite honestly. Uh, yeah, there's always been a conflicted relationship between, um, I think, published authors and the fan fiction that's based on their work. And I think partly that's because, like Anne Rice and George R. R. Martin are actual published writers. So... For them, perhaps maybe fan fiction is too close to their type of medium, you know, that they actually do, which is fictional writing prose. Whereas I think people who make a TV series or a film or or like a big science fiction franchise, they're working with a kind of a different medium, you know, so they're working with something that's visual. They know that fan fiction writers are never going to be able to replicate what they're going to produce that their product is because fan fiction writers don't have the budget they don't have the money and they don't have the they don't have the, the scripts they don't have the actors and actresses and, and the costumes and stuff as soon as fans can start replicating that or they can get close to replicating that then it becomes a copyright issue and you then then you see that actual um, studios um, will crack down on that but I, I'm not sure they care so much about fan fiction I think they think the more fans engage with each other in fan fiction, the more they'll go back to the original source material. And the more they go back to the original source material, the more viewers you get of Star Trek or Star Wars or the X-Files. You know, the more people you'll get involved in the fandom and the more people will enjoy it and the more people will tell other people about it and then you get a bigger, like, following. 
so this is the question can fan fiction be visual and i think when it becomes a visual it doesn't that sort of become slightly less pleasant perhaps maybe for make people who make tv and film i'm thinking of those youtube videos where they've taken a a, a piece of television or film and people have edited it so that it looks like it's got a completely different story i'm only <laughs> laughing because some of these are shipping videos where people have taken two characters right. that are not remotely involved with each other and <laughs> sort of edited it with some romantic music to make it look like it's like a rom-com or something <laughs> it, it, it's it's well i mean for one thing it's, it's quite strange but i mean i think i, I think it go you know it goes back to that whole idea we were talking about earlier which is the same in written written terms what is the psychology behind wanting to do that? You know what? I mean, that, that, that would not be, that would take time. That would not be easy. You've got to go through lots of episodes. You've got to pull out clips. You've got to edit them together. You've got to put music over it. You've got to do all these things. That is, as somebody who's edited videos before, that is, and not in any way professionally either, but that takes time. That takes time and effort and, and a, a, some level of vision in terms of what you're trying to you know, communicate, which is exactly the same as writing a story does. You know, that that takes time, it takes effort. You've got to have an idea, you've got to have a vision. What is it that compels people to want to create some sort of visual romance between, I don't know, Garak and Rom? <laughs> like, do, do you know I, I was like, if he says Garak and Bashir, we're going to have to have a conversation <laughs> well, because obviously... Garrick is kind of attracted to Bashir. Yeah, well, exactly. That one. But if you say, I mean, if you're going to say like Harry Kim and Tom Paris, like that, is that as an example? Yeah. Like there's nothing, there's nothing but friendship between them. No, so, that's, that's, but that's, I'm sure there's someone out there who's written a slash fan fiction where oh, yeah, Tom yeah. leaves Balana for Harry. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. But that, I mean, that is, that is just a bromance. That is, that is just a pure bromance. Like, like O'Brien and Bashir. It's bromance. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. You could say the same, I suppose, about Kirk and Spock, but I think their, their feelings sort of run even deeper in some respects. But I think it, it is ultimately that, that male bond, you know, that, that bromance idea. But yeah, people, it will, could take it one step further, you know, and <laughs> and it, I think visually, I think I think in some respects it's the same, you know. I think it's the same idea. It's it's what is it that you feel you're getting out of conveying this idea? Is it is it a sense of do you feel as a writer or as somebody who is you know creating a, a edited piece of video? Do you feel like you've you've missed an opportunity for love? Do you feel like you you want to portray? You know, and, and I'm not, it's not always a homosexual thing or, or a gay thing or anything like that. You know, it, it can be different. It can be male, female characters. It can be whatever combination, really. But what is it? Why is it you want those people to, together? What is it with that kind of fiction, that fan fiction, which is very different from the kind of fan fiction you get where people create, you know, the USS. I saw one the other day, which was the USS Dan Rather, um, <laughs> which, which made me laugh. <laughs> and the crew, no disrespect if the person who created that is listed. But it's it's one of those examples of something that, you know, people will create a crew, they'll create a ship, they'll create, they'll go off into the Gamma Quadrant section, you know, V5 or whatever, and they'll be exploring that. That's fine. What is it that makes people want to create a romantic entanglement? What is it that makes people want to do that unusual step? And I, I think it's, it is about your own need and your own psychology. So to go to that level of effort. So I think in terms of the visual side, I think it's the same. I think the only difference is when you get the, you know the, the the fan-made productions i think that's you know that that's an entirely different area really um but again it's you know the, these these are things that there's there's a lot to it there's there's a, there's a lot of different shades to it visually 
Well, so one of the things I thought we should touch on is the concept of a Mary Sue. So this is kind of feeding into what you were just saying, which is um, the idea of people putting themselves into the fan fiction. So we were just talking about people um, wanting to fulfill a, like may perhaps maybe a romantic need or romantic desire by wanting to see two kind of um, characters together. And then we also were talking about the the interest that people might have in extending a story beyond where it's been finished uh, or, or exploring a different type of different type or different part of the universe. So expanding the story. Well, there's also this, this desire people have is to actually insert themselves into the story. So a, 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 a episode written about a character um, that is basically the author in the actual starship working with the actual characters. And the concept of the Mary Sue term actually is originally coming, comes originally from Star Trek fan fiction. So the Mary, Mary Sue is now, it's now a science fiction website. You know, Mary Sue is now known as this kind of term, this hit sort of, I'm not sure it's mainstream culture, but it's, it's definitely like a sort of slang term now. I mean, you could probably look it up on Urban Dictionary. So what it is, is basically in early Star Trek fan fiction, it was a common plot that was a minor, a minor member of the USS Enterprise crew would um, save Captain Kirk or Mr. Spock. And in some cases be rewarded with sexual favors. Um, (laughs) In other cases, (laughs) in other cases, it would just be like part of the crew and they would save people and they'd be amazing. And it, it was like an idealized or fictional character lacking in flaws. So basically often representing the author. And this is seen as a particular bad trope in fan fiction. Like when you say something like a character, a main character of a, of a, of a fan fiction um, story is a Mary Sue, you're saying, oh, basically the author has written themselves into the storyline, uh, but they've made themselves more attractive. They made themselves cleverer. They have some sort of special ability, like maybe they're a telepath or maybe they're a captain or maybe they're really good at science. It's normally a female character. So it's normally a fe- supposedly a female writer writing a really amazing female character that basically wows everybody in the story and maybe has a sexual relationship with one of the main male characters. And it's not seen as a good thing. So I thought long and hard about this because I also don't like stories like that where like Lieutenant Mary Sue of the <laughs> USS Enterprise, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and I can't imagine, you know, myself like, Commander Clara Cook. It just sounds ridiculous. Commander Clara Cook of the, you know, the USS Voyager, um, <laughs> like, like drop kicks the Borg to the floor and does this amazing thing with her brain and then say, I just, I just don't think it's gonna, you know, it just doesn't. I, I, I don't know. I think I'd read that, Clara. I think that sounds quite good. <laughs> just you, Clara drop kicks a Borg. I think, yeah. I'd... Just all of, all of them at once. <laughs> just all of them. That big sphere, that big cube. I just, I take them all down in one fell swoop. Bad writing, bad writing. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought it's actually kind of a misogynistic term. And the reason why I say that is because there are lots of characters that are Mary Sue's that already exist mm. in established literary tradition. James Bond is a Mary Sue. Yeah, it's just he's just a male Mary Sue, and he's the Mary Sue of Ian Fleming. James Bond is the character Ian Fleming kind of wished he was. Yeah, and Kirk and Spock are Mary Sues. They're Gene Roddenberry's Mary Sue. You know, Gene Roddenberry wanted to be Kirk. He wanted to be mm. Picard. So, yeah. in a way, I wondered why we would accept those characters. I mean, they're not fan fiction, but like those characters, which isn't it kind of natural for people to want to write 
themselves into the story, but idealized versions of themselves. Because if you were in the future and you were in Star Trek and you went to the Starfleet Academy, wouldn't you be like a better version of yourself? I mean, wouldn't you be better at science? (laughs) I mean, well, I'll be honest. If I I tried to write me as I am now into a Star Trek story, I'd be useless. (laughs) I would be a waste of time. I would make like... Who's, who's, who's the most useless Star Trek character? You know, if we Neel- think Neelix. <laughs> I think Neelix, right? Yeah. Oh no, Wesley, Wesley. Right, right. Well, but uh, <laughs> interestingly, Wesley was accused of being, I think it was a Gary, Gary Stew or something like that. He's like a male version of a Mary Sue. In somebody who comes in and he's like a prodigy. And Wesley can do anything, you know, he, he knows all the things, he can do anything. <laughs> and everyone hated him for years until Michael Piller got his hands on the character and made him less of an annoying child. Right, he was just an idiot. He, well, he wasn't an idiot. He was. Everyone hated him because he was so clever. So it's that idea that if you, whoever he's based on, God knows. But if I wrote myself into it, I'd be useless. I'd be. I'd make Neelix look like, I don't know, <laughs> Captain Cisco or whatever. He'd just be the most. Uh, it, yeah, I'd be. I'd be awful. So I think to write <laughs> to write yourself into a story as a Mary Sue or a Gary Stew or whatever it is, and be the one who you know drop kicks a borg or whatever saves the day <laughs> i think i think that is some level i, I mean maybe maybe e- egotism is too harsh because i think <laughs> I, I don't know if, if, if you're sitting there writing a story in which you enter you know a star trek story i don't think you've necessarily got a great lot of self-esteem in the real world but i think <laughs> there, there is a level of wanting to play out a fantasy and you know you you could say that with with a lot of fan fiction itself, you know, as the very concept, it's about creating your own fantasy of what you want to see or what you never will get the chance to do. You know, so many people out there would would love to write a Star Trek script, would love to, you know, um, create a, a star a world of Star Trek for millions of people to watch. So loads of people would love to write books, Star Trek books, and I think they do that to to get that you know that feeling. But I think writing yourself, writing yourself as the perfect hero. <laughs> is about your own is about your own psychology i think of of wanting that heroic fantasy i think a bit like a bit like the romantic fantasy a bit like you know when romance writers write their ideal man you know um like (laughs) oh he was dreamy you know all this kind of thing he's just this perfect man who would never exist in the real world because most men are just the most imperfect lumps ever right so it's it's the same kind of thing I think, but it's fascinating, isn't it? It's the Mary Sue is a fascinating concept. Yeah, it really, it really is. It is really interesting. I think it's, it's like we're, it's, it's almost a sort of more adult version of a little kid dressing up as a Jedi with a lightsaber, yeah, and running around the living room, sort of like shouting, like, you know, I'm a Jedi, I'm a Jedi, I'm a Jedi. I sort of feel a little bit like it's like I'm an amazing Starfleet officer. That looks amazing, and everyone loves me. And Kirk and Spock want to both have sex with me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god! Well, you know, oh, and I'm also 19 years old. I'm like, no, <laughs> stop. I, I had I had um, a Deep Space Nine era Star Trek uniform when I was a kid um, that I that I did wear quite often. I had the tunic with the pips, but I I, I never. You know, and I used to, I used to have a pretend phaser, and I used to, you know, I had a tricorder. I, I was a, very, I think I was a science officer in my head. I wasn't like Kirk or a Jedi <laughs> running around saving the galaxy. I was, oh, look at that rock formation over there, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so I think, 
which is ironic because I'm the least practical person in the real world. So I'd be useless on a science expedition. I'd be a red shirt. I'd be if I was in Star Trek, Clara. I'd be a red shirt. I'd be dead as soon as I got on that planet. Right. That that's the more realistic depiction of me in a Star Trek universe. <laughs> right. I'd be the guy killed by the hulking Gorn as soon as I beamed down. Oh, I see. Crewman Black's dead. Yeah. Shouldn't have brought him really. I I actually have this conversation sometimes with friends, and in the same thing with like Star Trek, with the X Files, you know, with almost any like Star Wars. You, I'd be an administrator. I'm an administrator for life. <laughs> I know it, I would be one of those people that like processes the applications for Starfleet Academy. <laughs> you know, or, or I would be the person that digitizes all the X Files. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I wouldn't be doing anything. I'm not going to be on a starship. You know, I mean, I get car sick. I couldn't be on a starship. <laughs> and I'm kind of scared of like roller coasters and things that kind of could kill me. So there's no way I could survive in outer space. As much as I'd like to think it would be really fun, I know I would be an administrator on Earth. I wouldn't Definitely. even be as exciting as the people on Earth that you see in Star Trek. I mean, I just would be like the most boring person in Starfleet. I'll tell you who I, who I think has got the best gig. Joseph Sisko. He's got a lovely restaurant, right? He makes the most amazing food. He's really happy quite often. He's chilled out. He's playing a nice bit of jazz, right? That dude's <laughs> got it made, seriously. He's got the right idea. Just, you know, just be a chef. That's what I'd do. I'd be a chef. I can't cook now, but if I was in the Star Trek universe, <laughs> I'd be a chef. Just maybe less annoying than Neelix, hopefully. He- He's a head chef. He's a head chef, so he's got a whole bunch of other younger chefs to help him. I don't think he does all the cooking himself, what, so it's even more of a sweet gig. He's needed basically the Gordon Ramsay of, of Voyager. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe with less swearing. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if we could, uh, if you could think of any examples where fan fiction has become mainstream or has actually affected a franchise and uh, an actual affected actual canon. And the reason why I mention this is because uh, Sherlock, the series that was on uh, on BBC, that's um, a modern retelling of Sherlock Holmes. I'm sure that quite a few people have seen it in Britain, but also across the pond in the US. The showrunners started producing episodes that sort of resembled fan fiction in the latest series. I'm talking about season four. So uh, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but there are some, if you haven't seen it, I wouldn't really yeah. worry about seeing it if you haven't because it's kind of a waste of time in my opinion but um <laughs> the some of the plot developments are get weirder and weirder and even more uh, sort of outlandish uh, long lost siblings people turn out to be spies there's lots of emotional confessional scenes like people um can sort of uh, emoting in ways that the characters haven't done before which is very typical fan fiction you know people emoting at each other and one of the things that was interesting was I read an interview with one of the writers of the show and he talked about how he loved fan fiction. And I, I mean, this is just a suspicion because I'm not sure there's any evidence for this, but there's been a lot of Sherlock fan fiction that's been written. And I wondered a little bit if perhaps maybe the fan fiction that had been written about the show was starting to affect the actual show itself. And I wondered if you knew if there were any examples or, or you actually thought that was possible for any other TV series. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's it, nothing. Nothing necessarily leaps out at me, and I, I think because there always seems to be this very clear dividing line. Really, but certainly in terms of production of TV, it's interesting that, that you say that about Sherlock. You know, and I've, I've watched all that, and I enjoy. I do enjoy Sherlock, but I can understand why. What, what you, I, can, I get that. It doesn't surprise me when you tell me that, if I'm honest. But you know, the beauty of someone something like Sherlock is that 
it's it's public domain, Sherlock. So technically, as far as I'm aware, and somebody might want to correct me on this if I've got my details wrong, but as far as I'm aware, anyone can publish a Sherlock Holmes story and make money off it because it's public domain. So, which sounds crazy given he's one of the most you know well known characters in literature history, but he's not co- he's not under any kind of copyright, so anyone could do that. Um, which is one of probably one of the reasons that they've taken fan fiction stories and adapted them for Sherlock the TV series. It's very different for a lot of other TV shows when you're dealing especially with a copyrighted, you know, in a very you know, lockdown kind of thing. It's one of the reasons why for Star Trek they 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 always said they they cut they had a cutoff point for spec scripts in the end and they 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 knew that they they couldn't take spec scripts on anymore because it was there were there were dangers of, you know, rights issues and all kinds of things like that. So I think there's always been that very, for most properties, there's that clear delineation between what the writers on those shows come up with and what the fans come up with. I'm sure there's overlap. You know, I mean, I mean, you only have to, I mean, a good example is Game of Thrones. I haven't read Game of Thrones fan fiction, but I put money on the fact that somebody will have written the ending of that show already in fan fiction terms. Because you can kind of see where all the plot lines are going as we head towards the final season. It doesn't take a genius to work out what's probably going to happen in the end. Somebody will have written that. In fact, you know, and, in the, and again, to use George R.R. R. Martin as an example, he said fans have guessed the ending. You know, they've, they've put things online. They, they know. They, he said, I've read people who've guessed correctly what's going to happen. So I think there is some level of fan fiction will have ideas in there that writers will go on and do, whether they've taken those from fan fiction or they've been directly inspired I doubt it. I doubt it. I think they would have they would have gone their own specific way. And if there is some level of similarity or crossover, it's probably purely coincidental. Given the fact there's fifty thousand stories <laughs> on a website, <laughs> they've done everything. You know, I think fan fiction writers have probably done everything by now, pretty much. You know, I say that probably not in the slash area. Um, it's probably some some boundaries I mean, still to go. <laughs> no, you know what? I don't think there is because I mean, I mean. There's a whole, apparently there's a whole genre. I was researching this. There's a whole genre of fiction about people becoming centaurs. What? Yeah. And then also genre, there's a whole genre of fiction where people, where men get pregnant, become pregnant. I think it's like called M-Preg and it's a whole genre of fan fiction where um, the storylines surrounded about surrounding male characters becoming pregnant. I kind of avoid that sort of thing. I don't know why. (laughs) I just, I mean, I just feel like men already have like enough they already have enough representation in areas without <laughs> lots of areas without having to be involved in pregnancy. Yeah. I also generally not sure I find massively stories about pregnancy all that interesting anyway, but I don't know. I, 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 just I, I, I'm I, sure there's a mark out there for it. I kind of want to find, I kind of want to find one of these centaur things now though. Cause that, that's, that's, that's fascinatingly weird. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of stuff to do with werewolves and werewolf sex. I, I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, Fine. the thing is, like I said, but this doesn't just encompass, I mean, not that I'm suggesting anything about any particular <laughs> nationality, but remember, fan fiction isn't just written by people in the Western world. Fan fiction is written no. across the entire world. So, but the fa- you know, I mean, stuff that different cultures find compelling or interesting or different cultures that have perhaps maybe different um, traditions of storytelling or different myths in their in their history, um, they're going to write different types of fan fiction or f- than, than, than say, for instance, British people or American people are going to write, or European people are going to write fan fiction. Mm. So 
in a way, you you can end up with a whole wide range of very different types of stories. But like you also said earlier in the, in the podcast, you can also end up with stuff being very uniform after a while. Like, for instance, a smut or... or <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. straight to well, it's straight to smart, or um, you know, or, or like, <laughs> trying to think of another thing now, angst or crossover fan fiction. So some things can actually be very uniform, um, as well as being very wide ranging. So it's kind of a bit of a contradiction. The anyway, so to I was wondering, what kind of Star Trek fan fiction would you like to see, and do you have any future fanfic endeavors yourself? I I had I I did have something I wanted to do which is far more conventional and fits a lot of the kind of models really of what people would normally do. But I, I wanted to do the 25th century Enterprise E or not Enterprise E, Enterprise G or whatever in a new galaxy. I wanted to do a show which has, an, has a new crew and tells a completely different story and doesn't, I think what I'd like to see is a, is a and what I'd love to see as a series is a show that doesn't, you know, so many people talk about how they want post-Voyager, they want post-Nemesis. I I want that 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 time period, but I don't necessarily want the same things over and over again. I don't feel we need to see the next phase of the Cardassians. I don't think we need to see the next phase of the Klingons. I would like to see a Federation ship go back to the core idea of Star Trek, which is the final frontier. You know, put them in another galaxy. Find a way to put them in another galaxy on a mission of another five-year mission of exploration. And and create really new, weird, wonderful worlds. Now, one of the things I've really enjoyed Discovery, but one of the things I think it's not really lived up to the name. <laughs> you know, it's been in the mirror universe, sure. You know, it's uh, it, it's had all the stuff with the Klingons, fine, but it, it's not really about discovering anything yet. So, hopefully, future seasons will do that. But then it's still going to be within a certain paradigm. You know, it's it's in a specific time period. We know what happens afterwards we know what came before i'd love to see a, a, a trek show which is going beyond that and telling an entirely new you know landscape and you could do all kinds of new things you know new ideas new kind of aliens new kind of characters new worlds things like that and i i, I always thought i'd call it as a nod phase two um as a nod to the original 70s tv show name i have i have ideas for characters i have ideas for stories I've got so many other things going on in my life. <laughs> I'm supposed. I'm right. I'm trying to write an actual book that I will get published. Um, <laughs> so I probably shouldn't spend a lot of time writing Star Trek fan fiction, but you know what? I'm probably gonna at some point. <laughs> I'm probably gonna do it. But yeah, I think it's 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 nothing groundbreaking. But I think that's one of the things that, oddly enough, you don't see a lot of fan fiction do. You know, they do a lot of the crews exploring various different places and and the follow-on from the Dominion War or, you know, all these things that have happened in Star Trek, the Romulans, all this kind of thing. It's great. It's fine. But I want to I want to get back to it. You know, the real, let's push the boundaries. Let's go where no one has gone before. That does sound really interesting. And I would definitely probably read something like that. I also like the idea that you've, you would label it like Star Trek Phase 2. That's like really cool. And I would, I would say I definitely would read that. I think for me personally, one of the things I would really enjoy reading is and i'm kind of the opposite a little bit i would enjoy reading 
perhaps maybe more in-depth story series centered in a particular alien culture. So I've always mm. wanted to, look, to know a little bit more about the Cardassians and the Cardassian society, especially a Card- the Cardassian society after. I know there's been books that have been published about this, but I would really be interested in learning more about the Cardassian um, society after they've had this massive fall from from grace, if you see mm. what I'm saying, this this, this sort of destruction yeah. of, of their home world. And I would be curious and interested to hear about uh, to hear about the future of Bajor and Cardassia and how, what would it be like for Bajor to be in the Federation. I just would kind of like to delve a little bit more into the different sort of complex politics and cultures of the aliens, mm. rather than just so much to do with human-centric Starfleet, which... I do really enjoy, but I do sometimes, or even 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 fan fiction that's written about how New Vulcan copes with the fact that mm. in the Kelvin timeline the Vulcan has been destroyed. The new New Vulcan, what's New Vulcan like? How are the Vulcans mm. kind of coping with the destruction of their of their ancient culture? Like what happens after that? Like yeah. how does this work? So in a way, you'd have to have a story. You'd have to have a plot. But it's all that it's all that world build, world building. It's all that in depth detail that people take um, and, and create and write. Even down to the stuff like the kind of food that people would eat. Yeah. The the sort of what their homes look like, what the kind of things they they do and they say their customs. I I really enjoy that kind of stuff in fan fiction, uh, as well as as well as a as well as a good plot, obviously. Yeah. You know, and that, and that is one thing that Deep Space Nine particularly did quite well within the television paradigm. You know, it did flesh out Bajor more than I think any other Star Trek world beyond, well, even maybe beyond things like Vulcan, you know, because we know a lot about the Vulcans, but we don't necessarily know a lot about Vulcan and those people, you know, and what their day-to-day is and, their, and their, a lot of their culture. Whereas, you know, with Bajor, you did get a lot of that, even on Deep Space Nine. There were a lot of episodes that went into that. So, yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of Star Trek. You could you could do a lot. And a, lot of the, a lot of the time novels have done this kind of thing, really. You know, you could you you can go into much more depth in these alien cultures and and really create a fantastic, you know, level of detail. And that's that's one of the beauties of fan fiction in that yeah, you've got there is no official license to it, but you got you have the license to do whatever you want really and to create that. So it's basically an ever expanding universe of imagination, really. Yeah, that's the beauty of Star Trek. One of the things that people associate fan fiction with is is the internet and of course with the explosion of the internet you can get fan fiction almost any genre and any and from any different type of fandom but i read something really interesting the other day which i wanted to sort of share which is that the modern idea of fan fiction erupted in the 20th and 21st centuries as we know but i would also argue differently that fan fiction itself in its current form might be something that's new but actually the impulse behind fan fiction, uh, the, insp- the inspiration to create fan fiction or to create um, fiction that's based on on an original source material and that deviates from that source, original source material is actually a very old impulse. So in a world before copyright, before intellectual property, stories were very fluid. Um, the people who owned those, the stories were owned by everybody. The people who, who told the stories weren't necessarily the actual distinct or individual authors of those stories so i'm thinking of stuff like oral history uh, 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 the oral tradition of, of poetry something like it's going as far back as ancient greece in terms of homer a lot of shakespeare's uh, stories and, and shakespeare's plays were something that were that were retold and reinterpreted even during the time that he was alive these stories have been emulated adapted altered 
told again and again by different people. So when the first Star Trek fanzine came out in the 1970s, fans weren't just telling stories in a new way. They were also bringing back a very old tradition of retelling fiction. And this is something that perhaps we don't see when we look at fanfiction.net. We see this new way of interpreting Star Trek. You know, this is something that's it's, uh, kind of erupted since the 60s, but actually in the last 50 years. But actually it is an impulse that our ancestors <laughs> would have done sitting around a campfire or sitting around a, sitting around a fire in, in a settlement somewhere. They would have had a story that their grandfather would have told them or their grand, the grandmother would have told them and they would have retold it again and again and again. And they may have altered it and they may have changed it or they may have created a new story based on this this myth that they've been told. So actually, the idea of taking an original source material and changing it to how, altering it to how we want it to look like and what we want it to be is a very human impulse. And so that's something I just thought that would be worth mentioning. It's, it's, it's the bedrock, isn't it, of, of everything storytelling and oral storytelling and passing things down and retelling stories and doing things in a different way, you know. And, and most storytelling is retelling the same kind of things, you know. It's the same kind of journeys. It's the same kind of struggles it's that it's just it's just given new names different paths different sort of ways to the same to the same conclusion really it's all trying to understand who we are what we are where we're going and that's that's one of the great things about star trek and that's why it's great that there is so much fan fiction and people love to write in this world because like we like to talk about it on on these podcasts and we like to get into the depth of it it is one of the best universes for imagination for creation for you know trying to understand who we are through writing, through storytelling. And, you know, I, I just, even even without, even it just goes to show, even when it wasn't on the air in any way, people were still writing about it. And if it ever goes off the air again, or, you know, there are no m- movies to enjoy, people will still write about it. It will never go away. So it's been really interesting taking a look at the world of fan fiction. Um, we're glad that you could join us here today. But this is not the only subject that has been discussed on the network. So here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. And it really speaks to, to me, Halliday's ego even of, I'm going to make everyone love what I love. And then that's how they'll win the contest. You know, and, and it's sad that it feels like it all became that, what you're saying, Matt, of it, everyone not even having... Um, the creativity to have their own stuff anymore. It's all about what Halliday was interested in. Um, and, and then I think, too, it really also could be even a commentary about greed in society now that everything really revolved around wanting to get his, in, you know, his fortune. So they did all the research they had to do because they just wanted the money. Warp 5. Wait, hold on. You don't, you don't have... Hey, uh, a, a reflection. There's beams of light traversing the ship, cutting you. Mm. And my lack of logic is what's astounding here. Yeah, because you made an assumption based on zero evidence. Except for the fact that they just melted. Yeah, the three we that we've seen. We don't know that what the rest of them are doing. This is the we first one we've it was seen. anymore. Okay, let's scan the melting. Meta Trex. 
and, what? And, and do it all over again. Are you again. bad-mouthing Voyager <laughs> to a guy who hosts a Voyager podcast? <laughs> uh, you know I am. I, I always love to rib you about Voyager, but they, they really kind of play that card in this episode. They they hit that magic reset button. So. T- take that, you Deep Space Nine-loving Voyager-hating <laughs> reset button-obsessing fans. There's a reset button right here in this episode of Deep yeah. Space Nine. <laughs> Literary Treks. But that was also like one of the core ideas of the story before I even knew much about how it was going to develop, was this notion that we could find something to explore that would allow different groups of people to come together to explore it than we're used to seeing. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all right.